got a little ambitious about coming here the first time, coming up here the first time. I will say, too, that if uh, I, some, for some reason, um, step down, it's because my wife is going into labor. <laughs> so uh, we are right around the corner from that. So I'll be praying for her and for her comfort uh, as we're here. Let me pray for us as we begin, and, uh, and we'll get into it. Lord, I ask that you would make us hungry. I ask that you would cause this to be worshipful. That we would be willing to come to you to wrestle with your word. Not willing to leave it until you give us yourself. Lord, we thank you that we have this moment and I pray that you would be glorified among your people. In Jesus' name, I pray all these things. Amen. We are in Psalm 100 today, so if you would like to turn there, you're more than welcome to do that. But before we begin, I'm going to sing you, or I'm not sing you, I'm going to tell you (laughs) a hymn. This hymn is titled, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. It says, all people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Serve him with joy, his praises tell, come now before him and rejoice. Know that the Lord is God indeed. He formed us all without our aid. We are the flock he surely feeds, the sheep who by his hand were made. O enter then his gates with joy, within his courts his praise proclaim. Let thankful songs your tongues employ. O bless and magnify his name, because the Lord our God is good. His mercy is forever sure, his faithfulness at all times stood and shall from age to age endure. This is a hymn that was written by a man named William Keith. It has often been sung and has been called by many congregations in the past centuries, the Old Hundredth. Churches come together and they say, let's sing the Old Hundredth. It's a song that is written or a hymn that is written after echoing the words of the psalm that we are in today, Psalm 100. Churches have sung it throughout the past centuries and And this song was written for the church in the 1500s. It's been sung so often that I've come to the point where I've asked the question, why is this psalm so pivotal to church, to the church in the past? Why is it such a big deal? Why has this hymn been among the most relished in the church? Beloved, it's because God-centered mentality, a God-central mentality, will never go out of style among God's people. The people of God will continue to find pleasure in God when they sing about God. Psalm 100 has a deeply rich theology, but even more than that, it has an uncontained, an uncontained heartfelt devotion to God. And to worship God. Matthew Henry, writing in the 17th and 18th century, 
when speaking of this psalm, he says this, It is with good reason that many sung this song very frequently in their religious assemblies, for it is very proper both to express and to excite pious and devout affections towards God in our approach to him in the holy ordinances. And if our hearts go along with the words, we shall make melody in it to the Lord. Beloved, this psalm is one that is supposed to call the Christian, call the people of God to worship God. It is a psalm of joy and exclamation that we are to be together, to worship the God of creation forever at all times. It exemplifies or builds upon the exclusivity of of God, that there is no worship to be had apart from God. We'll examine that at a later time. The psalm is to increase the affections for God when we worship God, knowing that God does not desire to turn away any of those who desire to worship him in spirit and in truth. Friends, this psalm, some believe, was written by David. We don't really know. But we do know that the people of Israel would sing this song when they would give thanks to God. You can see there, even in the subscript, if you're already there, it says, A psalm for giving thanks. You may have even memorized this as a young child. It's a short enough psalm that you can come to and and even memorize and, and learn and teach to your children even. But the reason that people have memorized this and the reason that it has been so pivotal is that the people of God might have this psalm on their lips because they know that in this psalm it shows that the people of God can actually have joy in God. That the people of God can actually be pleased in their God, satisfied in their God. That the people of God can revel in their God. This psalm... Friends, this psalm will continue to be a loved psalm by the church because it has emotionally rich truth, and we are here to read it today. So friends, are you ready? Are you ready to worship? Read with me Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This psalm is outlined in a way that emphasizes the commands of praise to God while being rooted in a deep understanding of God himself. And this psalm does not seek to divide those things. A deep-rooted understanding of worship will always come from an understanding of God. And I'm going to call these things praise imperatives. That God calls his people, commands his people to behave a certain way. 
to do a certain thing. And withholding a few of these imperatives in verse 3 and 4, each imperative or command in this scripture that we see, that we just read, is attended by a corresponding posture of the heart. That every one of these commands, make a joyful noise to the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness, is attended by a posture, an emotion, a way by which, a fashion that God's people come to God in. So I've outlined the text in this way. Verses 1 and 2, and the first point of my, of my sermon is this, that the psalmist sets for us a pattern for praise. Verse 3, and the second point is this, that the psalmist gives us the motivation for praise. The fourth verse and the third point is that God gives us, the scripture gives us the virtue of praise. In verse 5, which is the final point, focuses on the subject of praise. Now first, focusing on the pattern of praise in verse 1 through 2, we notice these imperatives, the imperatives that the, that the psalmist draws out. Notice how this passage starts. In verse 1, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Many have thought in the past that this noise, and I've even heard sermons preached, that this noise refers to singing to God. And it, it would make sense. It, it makes sense that the people of God would sing a joyful song to the Lord. They would sing a hymn to God. And it would be fine to say. But that is actually covered in the end of verse 2. Come into the Lord's presence with singing. The first imperative in this scripture, in verse 1, that says make a joyful noise to the Lord, starts with not one of singing a hymn to God, but making a noise to God. That's literally what the word means, to make a noise to God. This word, if you were to just look at this word, the scripture literally means to shout, to shout to God. It's often used in the scripture as a war cry. Think back of 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, Joshua, when they would go into the land of Canaan trying to conquest the land that God was going to give them. There were many times where it said that the people would shout. You can think about your movies like Braveheart and Lord of the Rings where they all line up. They're ready to take the field. And they have a war cry. They have a war cry telling the army on the other side, we're coming for you. Or at the end of a battle when the army has won, the, the enemy is defeated and they stand there claiming, shouting victoriously that God is the victor, that we have won the battle. This is how the, off, the word is often used. But the best example I believe that we have is, for, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5 through 9. Now in this passage... The Israelites were out on the battlefield. They were fighting against the Philistines, and the Philistines were winning. And this is the time before David. Samuel still was a young boy, the prophet. And the Israelites said, we need the ark. 
We need the ark of God. Why? Because the ark of God is where the presence of God was. And so they go and get the ark. And they bring the ark into the camp of Israel. And the scripture picks up and says in verse 5, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Now notice what they do here. It says, these are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They recall God's mighty deeds that he used to save his people and to preserve them. The Philistines finish by saying, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. The reason the Israelites shout in this passage is because they knew, beloved, they knew that the presence of God was among them. I hear even today that sometimes when the, when the Torah is opened among the Jews, they will even shout today. Because they know that God's word is about to be read. Now you could go into more detail about the backstory of 1 Samuel. But the point of the passage is that they shouted so loud because God was among them. What is also interesting that I'd like to point out is the similarity of that text, the first Samuel that we just read to Psalm 100, the psalm that we're in today. Verse 1 in Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And the verse in 1 Samuel says that the mighty shout was so loud that the earth resounded. So echoing was this shout that it boomed upon the scene. Friends, the Philistines couldn't ignore it. They look across the land where they were about to have battle and they say, Oh no, God is among them. This God that destroyed the Egyptians. If you didn't know, the Egyptians were the supreme power when God performed his mighty signs in Exodus. Egypt was not a secondary power. They were supreme Pharaoh was considered to be a god, and his nation was his kingdom. And they all worshipped him. The Philistines had to pay attention. And this is the noise we speak of when we're reading in Psalm 100. Friends, what we, hear, what we have here is what I'd like to call our first imperative, and that's this. God's people proclaim God's glory to the nations. God's people proclaim God's glory to the nations. Notice how the verse says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. All the earth. There's two things you can know. It's, it was so loud that the earth would hear it. And secondly, that they are actually speaking to the earth. They're saying, world, come and join us in making noise and shouting to our God. But we also need to notice the posture. The posture that attends this proclamation. It says we are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. 
It's a proclamation that is full of joy. This proclamation to the world about our God would be nothing if joy did not attend it. Friends, does proclaiming God's praise from the heart, from your heart, come from compulsion or joy? If you're praising God at all, I hope it starts with the heart of joy. Friends, I would ask you to examine your own relationship with God to see if you actually find joy in Him or not. Is He the fount that where, where you find pleasure? Is He where you go to be satisfied? Is He where you go when the things in your life, the relationships in your life, even your marriage, your children, your job, your friends, they seem to be falling apart at the seams. Do you go to God to be satisfied, to be pleased, and not to the world? Friends, we, we compile trinkets of the world to satisfy our hungers, and God is sitting there saying, come to me. Come and find rest. And we ignore it. Because this is the invitation to the world to praise God in this psalm with those who are God's people, it's a call to the world to come and glory in the God of our salvation. But there are two options, friends. There are two options for those who hear the worship of God from the lips of his people. They will either come or they will run. They will either come or they will run. When the world hears God's people shouting God's praise, they will either join in or they will fear God's wrath to come. What did the Philistines do when they heard the shouting in the Israelite camp? It says they were afraid. They feared. Because they knew that God, though he saves his own people, he judges those who are not. Beloved, how is your proclamation of the word? Do you proclaim the word to your coworkers, to your family? When was the last time you shared the gospel with a coworker, a friend, or even your family members? When was the last time you shared the gospel with your children? Friends, evangelism is the way that we call the world to glorify God with us. This is the call from the beginning, that we invite the world to worship God with us. And we pray that the proclamation from our lips would so entice their hearts that the Lord would draw them and create new life in them. And cause them to walk in his statutes and live in a way that is righteous and noteworthy according to God. Notice the second statement in the beginning of verse 2. When it says, serve the Lord with gladness. Notice how matter of fact this passage treats the idea of service to the Lord. It's just a thing that people do. It's a thing that people of God do. Serve the Lord with gladness. It's not as if God's people serve while others do, some of God's people serve while others do different service or don't do service at all. The scripture calls all of God's people to serve God. We can see a clear example of this if you were to go to Acts chapter 6. You remember this passage, you'll remember that there's a disagreement between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. 
because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And this problem is because the apostles was brought to the apostles. But the apostles, what they do as a result of this is astonishing. You can read with me if you, if you turn there. Acts chapter 6 verse 2 reads this way. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of this word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and the proselyte, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the, men, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, it's very easy when you read this passage, and I have in the past, I've thought this as well. When you read this passage, it's very easy to think that the apostles are neglecting service to the church, but they're not. The word used in this verse 4, if you were to read there, verse 4, the word ministry is literally the word where we derive the word deacon. So if you were to read it quite literally, it would read this way. The apostle said, we will devote ourselves to the deaconing or the service of the word. See, all people in God's church are called to serve. All people. There is no cutoff. There is no... But I have to do this. Now, friends, I have to say, I will say as well, there's some things, there's some times in our lives where we have to step back. We need to allow the Lord to do some remedy on our own hearts before we serve. Because there may not be a, a joyfulness in our service, a gladness in our, in our service, if we do it out of compulsion. All of God's people are, are called to serve him. We are, ser- we are called to serve him. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're in Christ, we're called to do that. Maybe you've been in a busy season, though. It's been hard to serve God in the church. I would ask you, how are you serving God and his people? Do you want to, friends? That's the question. Do you want to serve God? Friends, if you're a member here at, at CCBC, we have... Service teams, become involved. Get involved in the service teams. Find a way that you can begin to contribute to to the church here at CCBC. Serve God, but notice the posture that accompanies the imperative, that it is with gladness. Would you describe your service to God with gladness, as with gladness or with groaning? Is your joy in your proclamation of the word more with emptiness or with joy? Your service more with grumbling or with gladness? Beloved, the extent of the command here is not that we are to simply serve the Lord, but the command is that we are to do it with gladness. But do we? There might be some kind of service we struggle with, and that's okay. It's okay that if you struggle with a certain kind of service. In fact, sometimes it's okay, like I was saying a minute ago, to remove yourself for a season. 
See, beloved, God doesn't just care that we worship him. He cares how we worship him. I believe the how is sometimes more important than the, than the imperative, the command that we do it. This is why the scripture is speaking about the elders in the church. The Bible says they are not to do it under compulsion, but willingly. I would say the same of any service in the church. Friends, do you do it willingly or under compulsion? Friends, if you're noticing a bitterness growing in your heart, a compulsiveness in your heart to serve God's church, friends, take a step back. Take a step back and let the Lord renew your spirit. Examine your relationship with God and your brothers and sisters in Christ that you may be refreshed and then serve the Lord again in his church. Now to point out the last statement in this first verse, or in this second verse, the verse says, come into his presence with singing. Notice the third imperative to come in the posture of that imperative with singing. This word with singing literally means to do it with joy. To come into God's presence with singing and joyful singing at that on our lips. This is when God's people come into the presence of God among his people and worship him, sing to him, glorify him. This is the company of the righteous coming together to sing a hymn to God and worship his name forever. Friends, this is what we are doing here today, right now. We come together to worship God, to sing his praises on the Lord's day. Friends, this is what the church does. We come into his presence with singing. We serve the Lord with gladness and we proclaim to the world. Enjoy. But verses 1 and 2 are those that invite the world to come and worship God. As we do. Standing outside the door, ushering the people of God or the people of the world to come. That we might proclaim, that they might proclaim, that they might serve, and that they might sing to our God. This is the great pleasure of the church. We get to worship God. Friends, that's why the church exists. We worship him. Now, I want to notice, I want you to notice as well a transition here. From verse 2 to verse 3, there's a change in language. From verse 1 through 2 to verse 3, we see a change from doing something to knowing something. We see a change from an imperative that focuses on the limbs or the actions to a knowledge. An intimate, intellectual assent to something. Now here I would like to take a pause between verse 2 and verse 3 and point out two essential aspects of worship. Revelation and response. Revelation and response. All of worship is tied up in those two things. God reveals himself to his people and we worship him as a result. Revelation response. See, God never commands his people to worship him in a way that he has not previously revealed himself. So worship must always be based upon truth. 
If you do not worship God in the way he has prescribed himself to be worshipped, you could be, friends, you could be in sin. Let me explain it this way. Revelation, God revealing himself, revelation without response is hypocrisy. But response without revelation is idolatry. Revelation without response is hypocrisy, but response without revelation is idolatry. See, the problem is that if you have an intimate knowledge of God, the true God revealed in the scriptures, but do not worship him, you either do not believe in him or you do know him, but you do not worship him. So you become a hypocrite. Think about the moment when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He continues to call them what? Hypocrites. They claim to have a knowledge of God, but do not worship the God of the law. They require the people to live in a certain way so that they may gain God's pleasure, that they might find God to be pleased with their works. Jesus, when speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, after telling him that he must be born again, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Knowledge without worship, without response. The point is that they know the law. These Pharisees, they know the law but did not know the God of the law. And on the other side, if you respond in worship to a God that has not revealed himself, then it's idolatrous. You begin to make God who he is not. You begin to make a God in our own image. We begin to create in our own minds a God that doesn't exist. And we begin to worship that God. I remember having conversations with, other, with, with men who are not believers. And I remember hearing from their lips them saying, I don't believe God would ever have me do anything if it does not make me happy. He's worshiping a God of his own making. He's worshiping a God in his own image. We begin to make God look more like us than we look like him. It's true that God made us in his image and we don't have the liberty to make him in ours. So friends, with that understanding of what worship is, let's come to verse 3. When verse 3 reads this way. Know, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The psalmist here is untying the knot of, I desire to proclaim God's praise to the nations, but I struggle with joy. I desire to serve, but I struggle doing it with gladness. This passage is giving us the root for the fruit, friends. It's giving us the idea that knowledge of God leads to worship of God. That if we can't know the true God, then there is no motivation to worship him. It's asking the question, what engine lies under the hood? Of our lives? What is the fuel that ignites our service to God? 
You see the exclamation point at the end of that first sentence. The psalmist is continuing to proclaim the glory of God, and now he's emphasizing the exclusivity of that worship. He says, know that the Lord, he is God. He is God. Friends, we are, we're told this in verse 3, not just because the psalmist is trying to point out something obvious. We're told this in verse 3 because the psalmist knows our tendency. The psalmist knows that our tendency is to worship a God that is not. Our tendency is to draw ourselves to fulfill our worldly appetites by worshiping the God who is not. A God that doesn't exist. A God of our own making. A God made in our own image. And so this proclamation that we are to know God, that He is God. He is God is the exclamation point on the end of the phrase, Friends, you must know who this God is, and you must know how your worship to God is fueled. That we are to worship nothing else other than God alone. I'd like to make the point that this cuts off the chance for God's people to come together and worship ourselves rather than God. It's the idea that God reveals himself and our own knowledge of ourselves is revealed to us through him. John Calvin said this, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He goes on to express why he wrote this and why the order matters. Calvin is arguing that all true and sound wisdom starts with our knowledge of God and flows to the knowledge of ourselves. Starts with God and comes to ourselves. To put it plainly, we cannot know ourselves unless we truly know God. Haven't you found when you're reading Scripture and you're finding the truth that just leaps off the page, how you begin to see life with a little more clarity? How you begin to see the separation of God's holiness from sin? And you begin to see that the world that those who do not know God are depraved. That the depravity of the world is so extensive that it flows to every part of our beings. That it's a total depravity. It's because, friends, when we read the scriptures, we know who God is. And then we learn more about us. What does the scripture say in Jeremiah 17.9? The heart is a sepal above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And also in 2 Chronicles 6, 28-31, Solomon, while he's dedicating the temple, he says, If there's a famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all the people of Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow, stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of the children of mankind. That they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you give, that you gave their fathers. So friends, if we cannot truly know ourselves unless we have a true knowledge of God, 
And friends, we cannot trust our own judgment of ourselves either. We cannot trust the way that we think about ourselves apart from the way that God thinks about us. This is why we must know that if you seek to learn about yourself, if you first know who God is and then learn about yourself, all true knowledge and wisdom must flow, will flow through the Godhead to his people. Beloved, this is why the scripture we read out of this morning, the scripture that we read out of earlier in the service, and the scripture we sing about in the hymns is so valuable. It's the only revelation from God to mankind that we might know him and his will. That's why the whole service is drenched in the Bible, because we are not here to magnify man's words, but God's words. We're here to read God's word. The very fact that it sits in your laps today is proof that God wants his people to know him. And only then can we have a right understanding of who we are. So all worship must flow through what God says about himself and about us. Because, friends, we cannot truly trust ourselves to develop a true image about God from our own intellect. It's important to see that the Lord has revealed himself enough in order for his people to respond in the way that he commands. God only expects worship in the sense that the thing being worshipped is deserving of that worship. Notice how the psalm focuses on what we do, not because of what God does, but because of who he is. The Bible doesn't say that God does for us, so we do things for him. But the scripture says here that we do because God is. When Moses was at the bush in the wilderness, what does God tell him when he sends him back to Egypt? Moses says, if I come to the, to the, to the Israelites and, and they say, who sent you? God said to Moses, tell them that I am sent you. God said, say this to the people of Israel. I am. I am has sent me to you. The focus is on who God is, not necessarily on what God does. We often treat God with a quid pro quo relationship. I scratch God's back, he scratches mine. Friend, if God somehow did nothing for you, if he never did anything for you for the rest of your life, he would still be worthy of your worship. If he never did anything for you for the rest of your life, he'd still be worthy of your worship. Why? Because he's God. See, worship is tied with worth. And I'm not talking about placed from ourselves to God or worth that is placed on something from ourselves. I'm talking about essential, intrinsic worth. Something that God is, not something that we make him. The only things that should be worshipped are things that are worthy of that honor. We worship God because he is God. Friends, do you know what fuels a believer's engine? It's that. It's that we worship God. And we worship the God who is. Not focusing on what he does for us, but what he is. Who he is. What he has revealed himself to be. Friends, if you do not know this God, if you do not know if you do not worship the true God of the universe, 
then there's no wonder that we might struggle with our proclamation, our service, and our coming into God's presence. Beloved, if you do not know the true God and know without a doubt that he is God, there will be no joy attending our proclamation. There will be no gladness attending our service. There will be no singing attending our coming. Because our worship is vacant of God's presence. And we are so content to fill it with our own image. See, friends, we're not talking simply about being worshipers. We're talking about being hungry worshipers. We're talking about being people who want to worship God. That there ought to be a hunger that personifies God's people. That God's people have a cup. And we come to God and we say, Lord, fill our cup. Fill our cup. Do you know what evangelism is? Evangelism is the overflow of our cup. Evangelism is the overflow of God's filling in our lives. The overflow of being filled by him. It's not always supposed to be this weird, awkward, elevator ride conversation. Now, sometimes it is that. Evangelism is that. And we are called to obey God. But true, real evangelism is the overflow of being filled. It's when we come to the word of God on Monday and say, fill my cup, Lord. And we come back on Tuesday and say, fill my cup, Lord. And on Wednesday, we come back, fill my cup, Lord. And on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, we do the same thing. And then on Sunday, we say, Lord, fill my cup. And the Lord unleashes an ocean on us. And he fills us that we might be filled and proclaim his word. And then when we go out on Monday and we come to our coworker and to our family, we do everything we can to keep ourselves from grabbing them in the shirt and saying, know who God is. That's evangelism. Evangelism is the overflow of our lives that God fills us and we overflow on the people around us. We can't help it. The people who are around us just hear the word because we are so filled by God. And we tell of his greatness. We proclaim his goodness. We serve him with gladness. We come into his presence with singing because he's God. And he fills his people. Often we treat worship as such a fleeting thing, like the Israelites when they rose up to play in the wilderness when the golden calf had been built. Beloved, I pray that we don't treat God's worship so flippantly, that we seek to know the true God of the Bible and dedicate ourselves to worship Him alone. That's why the verse says, no, that He is God. The psalm focuses on who God is, but it reveals three ways He has cared for His people. And these are resounding ways throughout all of Scripture. Verse 3, you can notice three things. God creates his people. God possesses his people. And God preserves his people. God creates a people. He possesses a people and he preserves those people. You can see this clearly in the, state, in the statement, it is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is talking about, of course, how God has from eternity past had in mind to create a people that bear his image. And that bear his image and proclaim his image to the nations. 
The scripture says at the end of Genesis 1 that God saw everything he had created and it was very good. God creating of man was no mistake. God intended to have image bearers walking on and caring for his creation that he had provided them. Living in perfect agreement with the triune God of the universe. Genesis says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Friends, this was to forever be the condition of man, living harmoniously with his God. And man, Adam, though he was living in perfect relation to God, fell and sinned against God. Seeking to be like God, Adam plunged the whole of creation and of mankind into sin in separation to and under the just wrath of the holy God who hates sin. Because of this, man could not be in right relation to his God anymore. See, Adam forsook the true God in creation, the God of creation, and thirsted after the God of his appetites. So man fell into sin, and man was no longer able to come to know God in the way that God desires his people to know him. After this, every man and woman did not desire their creator, but instead sought to pleasure themselves in their sinful appetites. Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God destroyed all the wickedness of the earth, and through an act of salvation, kept Noah's family safe with an ark made of wood. Keeping them safe, he brought them through the flood, and God told Noah in Genesis 8, 21 through chapter 9, verse 2, it says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and, every, and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. I deliver them. Chapter 9, verse 1 sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Be fruitful and multiply. God had destroyed the evil from his creation and was creating a new people. And this time it was from his servant Noah. But even at this time, we find only a couple chapters later at the Tower of Babel that the people sought to build their way up to God and again become like him. The original problem. But God called man, a, a man out of Ur. This man's name was Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God brought Abram from his own land and took him to another land. And on the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, he said, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, Euphrates. Friends, what was this? The promised land. This was before the Israelites possessed it. This was when Abram, Abraham was in the land and God says, The land you stand upon, I will give it to you. I will give it to your children. And they shall possess it. They shall have it. The land flowing with milk and honey. God then changed Abram's hand, name to Abraham and through Isaac and Jacob started making Abraham into a great nation. Israel. So what do we see? We see God creating a people. The Lord saved his people by sending Joseph ahead to pave the way for the people of God to come to Egypt. Here we know that they were in bondage and the people of Israel had been in the land for 400 years. The scripture says in Exodus 2, verse 23 through 25, During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried for help because... They were in bondage, and their cry for rescue from slavery came to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He remembered his people. He remembered them. So God raised up a mediator in Moses, and through mighty acts of salvation and wonder, bringing his people out of Egypt and out of slavery, this was the pinnacle of God's salvation for his people, and he desired that they live in harmony with him again. Exodus 19, 4-6 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, And brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You shall be my treasured treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God desires a people for his own possession, friends. God creates his people, and God possesses his people. But if you continue to read the story, you find that this is contingent on whether the man would keep God's commands, whether men could do it. God said, keep my commands. Well, could they? No, they couldn't. So man fell away from his God, and they could not live in perfect harmony with their creator. We find the disappointing story of rebellion, continual failure, to keep our end of the covenant and a continual understanding that God still has mercy on his people, that he still possesses his people. And then David comes on the scene. King David. David, a man after God's own heart. But even David fell and sinned against God, and we see that man cannot be what God commands and demands us to be in order for us to be in a right relationship with him. David fell. But then God speaks to David in 2 Samuel 7 and says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for from you offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God gives David the promise that his kingdom will last forever. This spurred on God's people to continue looking forward, gazing at the future, seeking that God would be the one who dwells, that he would find that that king who dwells upon his throne, the, the throne of David forever. God creates a people, but they continue to rebel against his rule. God possesses a people, but they continue to seek independence from the possession of their only king. And God preserves his people by bringing them to the promised land, but because of their sin, he sends them into exile. Away from the pasture that he had given them. Then we see in Isaiah that this man, that he will come to bear the sins of God's people. And in Jeremiah 31, we see, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And then the house of Judah, not a covenant like I have made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. Can you imagine being Simeon on that day in the temple? When Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus in, the scripture says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting. It says, and he became, and he came in the spirit, Simeon, into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up him in his arms and blessed God. And said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Beloved, Jesus is the true Adam. The man who, though tempted 40 days in the wilderness, did not sin against his God. The one who didn't gratify an ungodly appetite. Jesus is the one who saves sinners from the flood of wrath that God would bring against the ungodly. Jesus is the one who took upon himself the beatings from the waves of God's wrath so that those who are in Christ might have new life. Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the one who perfectly mediates for his people. The one who goes to his people, miraculously calls them out of darkness, slavery, bondage to their sin, that they may know their God again. 
Jesus is the true king of David who will rule his people justly and will continue to rule them until the end. Jesus is the one who creates one new man in himself. Jesus is the one who takes a new possession of the remnant, the people of God, and Jesus is the one who will preserve them to the end. That they may enter his pasture. But beloved, this pasture is not flowing with milk and honey. This pasture is flowing with rivers that find their source in the presence of God. We look to that kingdom. We are the people who look to the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, the pasture where we will dwell in the end. God is preparing that for us. Fellow saints, this is worth worshiping. This God, the God who saves his people, the God throughout all of history has had a plan to create a people, possess a people, and preserve a people to the end. That's God. That's the God we worship. That is why this psalm exclaims God's glory because he's worthy of it. Beloved, do you know this God? Do you know the God of the Old Testament? Do you know the God of the prophets? Do you know the God of the new? Do you know the God who, in repentance and faith, placed upon Christ, turning away from your sin, following hard after Christ, God will take possession of you and preserve you. He will create in you a new heart and cause you to walk in his statutes. The third point in verse 4 is this. The virtue of our praise. Verse 4 says this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Keep in mind the direction of verses 1 through 2. Verses 1 through 2 is when the people of God invite the world to glorify God with them. Verses 1 through 2 is the summons. Verse 4 is the entrance. Think about it like this. In verse 1 through 3, God's people have their backs against the gates shouting to the world, come. Verse 4 is when they turn around and enter the gates. Notice again all the imperatives in this text. How it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And implied at the end of that, enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. But I want to point out something here that, about the progression of these terms being used. The passage says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. At the end of verse 4, the verb there translated bless isn't just a word that means we are to bless God, though that's true. But it's a word that carries with it a sense of submission. In fact, in some places it's translated kneel to God. Think of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6. Or think of the situation in Luke 5 when the future disciples catch a large amount of fish because Jesus tells them to cast the net. In Luke 5, verse 8, the scripture says, When Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. This is the idea that when we come into God's holy presence, we understand that he is far beyond ourselves, that we aren't able to approach him. The more we come into God's presence, 
the lower we get. We come into God's presence, God's glory is shining, and we just get more and more humbled. Notice also in verse 5 how the text emphasizes the enduring permanence of God's love. This is the fourth thing, the subject of praise. In verse 5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. The word for this conjunction is pointing out the fact that, that this is why we worship God. This here is the foundation. This here is the root. Because God's love is an everlasting love. His faithfulness is a never-ending faithfulness. The passage also points out that God's goodness is the foundation of worship. That because God is good, He is eternally worthy of all worship. I spoke earlier about how God brings His people into His pasture. And now we see the foundation for praise, of praise, is God's goodness and His loving kindness and His mercy and His faithfulness that flows from His presence because He's good. Beloved, we serve a good shepherd. We serve a good shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Friends, Jesus Christ displayed his perfect love for his people by dying for them on the cross and will faithfully keep them until the end. If you're here and you do not know Jesus, or you think you know Jesus, but you don't know the Jesus we speak of, then know that just as God is faithful in keeping his people, he is also faithful in his judgment to sinners. If you do not know Jesus in the way we speak, in the way the Bible speaks, you remain under the wrath of God. And God will pour out his cup of wrath upon you in the end. But sinner, there is grace. There is grace and mercy found in Christ. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, has often said, had often said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in me. Aren't we thankful? Beloved saint, worship the God of our salvation and know that he is good. Dear sinner, come to God. He offers salvation in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon says this, God is not mere justice, stern or cold. He has bowels of compassion and wills not the deaths of sinners. Towards his people, mercy is still more conspicuously displayed. It has been theirs from all eternity and shall be theirs world without end. Everlasting mercy is a glorious theme for sacred song. And his truth endureth through all generations. No fickle being is he, promising and forgetting. He has entered into covenant with his people, and he will never revoke it. Nor alter the thing that he that has gone out of his lips. As our fathers found him faithful, so will our sons and their seed forever. 
A changeable God would be a terror to the righteous. They would have no sure anchorage amid a changing world. They would be driven to and fro in perpetual fear of shipwreck. It were well if the truth of divine faithfulness were more faithful, were more fully remembered by some theologians. It would overturn their belief in the final fall of believers and teach them a more consolatory system. Our heart leaps for joy as we bow before the one who has never broken his word or changed his purpose. Friends, this is the God we serve. A God who will faithfully preserve his people to the end. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your immense goodness that you've displayed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. I thank you that you create people for your glory. That you have preserved your people, that you have possessed your people, that you still desire, Lord, to bring your people under your rule, in your place, that you are the king. Lord, I thank you that you are good, that you are glorious, that you are worship worthy. And Lord, I thank you for the chance that we have had to be among your people in front of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would cause it to permeate in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.